What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 62 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. First things first, Mike and I got to get all caught up, but after we do that, we'll get into some recommended listening. In our education section, we'll talk about developing your bass drum technique. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Brad Wilk from the band Rage Against the Machine. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out some Van Cleef snare drums. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. I was super early on that one. How it sounded to you. <laughs> that is so funny. Like jump the gun like a mofo. Oh. Hey man, <laughs> we're all, we're just working on our flams. We're just we're opening them up. Uh, how are you, bud? I'm good. That was the longest we've ever talked since doing the podcast without actually recording. Like we were we were doing proper research together. I felt like <laughs> right. that's what it must be like to have a job. I think we jumped a shark. We just pre-produced our own show. That's pretty bad. <laughs> but at least we were we were pre-producing out of our own lack of intelligence of the <laughs> subjects we we're about to speak about <laughs> so i feel like that's not jumping the shark i feel like that's i think some people call it preparation or yeah um, nah. heck with that due diligence if you will uh yeah we were uh, we'll talk about it later but we were looking up a drummer for you guys and uh we didn't know who played drums on a specific song that we we're going to feature today and then we kind of went down the rabbit hole with that drummer and found out he's got quite the amazing career so we'll talk about that later how's everything in the md world what's going everything on in modern drummer it's good we um what is going on in modern drummer we are finishing we're just getting january rolling so we're close we closed december and we got the january issue going and we start working on february next week wow. crazy crazy oh crazy goodness. crazy how do you live like that like you know you it's know confusing. that it's october but you go home to your wife and you're like Babe, we've got it. We've got plans. I mean, Easter's coming up. It's just <laughs> yeah. like, what are you talking about? We haven't even done Thanksgiving yet. It, you know, I I will say that it makes the years go by in in such a strange way that I don't even I don't like the holiday season will come and go because we've already been talking about it since like right like July. Yeah, it, it definitely is weird. It's a weird cycle because there's no um, there's always no chance to sit back and take a breath because as soon as you get through one and and like. I assume most people, when you when you finish a project, you want to sit back and just kind of relish for a, a little bit. But it's like, nope, right. that's done. Do it all over again. It's like start right. over, do it all over again. It's yeah. literally the same process every month, which keeps you know keeps the day go going by fast. But it can be overwhelming, especially if you get behind by a week, like I seem to always be. I kind of lap myself. Right. So yeah. I'm yeah. Like yeah. Like I have a DW kit. I have to get reviewed. Like it's supposed to be today. It'll be tomorrow. It might be Monday. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to review it on the weekend. You're not getting paid for that. I will take it home. That'll be the, the, the real testing will be tomorrow, over the weekend. Gotcha. Taking to the studios the Cherry Mahogany kit that they debuted. Oh, nice. At, at yeah, yeah. It's pretty. Definitely pretty. <laughs> See how they sound. <laughs> it's pretty rare that they, do, that they don't make something unbelievably gorgeous. Uh, yeah, I don't feel qualified to play their stuff. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just admit that I don't feel, I don't feel rich enough to play. <laughs> their stuff. Uh, are you a performance series kind of guy or a PDP kind of guy? I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a house kit kind of guy. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you are a uh, a vintage Ludwig or Slingerland at a pawn shop kind of guy. Yeah, like exactly. you're like, let me take that home and and restore the luster and the magic that is sitting inside yeah. that drum set. I need a scarred up kit. That's that's kind of yeah. represents me a little bit better because these are just flawless. The finish is gorgeous and yeah, you know I'm, it's beautiful. I'm not I'm I'm making fun, but it looks great. No, I think we're making fun of ourselves yeah. in relation to how insane <laughs> their kits are. <laughs> right. Absolutely, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, buddy. Oh, goodness. Hey, I have a, a quick off-topic question for you, but you do a lot more recording than I do, and you've experimented with it more. I mean, for me, I get my mics kind of set up, and from there, I mean, obviously I tinker a little bit, but I just need my drums to sound like drums, so I don't do a lot of stuff. So I had a um, large diaphragm condenser in front of my kick about mm -hmm. four or five inches away, and that was just getting some of the natural sound of the bass drum. Well, yesterday I was changing out from my... Brooklyn to my broadcaster, so I took that mic away, put the kick mic back in, my normal kick mic, back inside the kick of the broadcaster, and the large diaphragm condenser on a smaller tripod ended up being 
pretty much where I moved it to, not on purpose, where it was just sitting, was almost under the bell of my ride cymbal, but at about half the height of the bass drum. So it's kind of the even distance between the floor tom and the rack tom mm-hmm. sitting kind of right next to the kick, and it is giving me so much attack and clarity. It's really hard to explain, but it's a really cool sound yeah. that I wouldn't use by itself, but when I mix it in, I'm I'm think I mean is that like a do people put microphones in the middle of their drum set? Yeah, I've seen a lot of guys put um instead of putting the room mics like on the far left and right side of their kit, they 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 view their drum set from like a 45 degree angle. Okay. So they they put the room mic splitting exactly where you are, but any distance yeah. away or the other side. Some people will do on the snare side. I got you. And I, I know uh the Dat Kings, they when they recorded some of that Amy Winehouse stuff, they did the drums with one mic on the floor, basically, between the snare and the bass drum on the hi-hat wow. side. And that was the whole kit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of an incredible sound. And so I'm thinking, if I stick with it, I mean, I really just did it as an accident. It was just sitting there waiting for me to move it back. And then I put my in-ears in because I was more or less tuning my broadcaster. And I was like, what the hell's going on? Like, my kick hmm. sounds incredible, but not bigger. It actually had more attack but a different kind of attack than you get from the close mic it was it's really hard to explain i was thinking maybe what i could do uh maybe next week is play a little groove and then mute all the tracks except for that one so you hear specifically what it's doing but um i think uh, yeah it was kind of a cool microphone spot to to put things in so yeah cool uh, well let's talk about some recording we've got some new recommended listening for all of you guys out there and obviously the point of this and the goal of this is to alert you to music that influenced myself and Mike in our past. And that's always been always been something that I love asking other professional drummers is when you were 16, what were you listening to? I rarely ask, hey, what are you into right now? I'm more concerned with what led to this point. Like where you are right now in your career is something that I aspire to be. So what were you doing at 16 and 18 and 22? Let me know what what led up to all of this. Uh, so that's the, the goal of our recommended listening section and our segment. And yours today is? I have uh, – it's actually a track I mentioned last week. I think it was last week we were talking about drum soloing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a Hank Mobley track featuring uh, the great Art Blakey on drums. The, the, the song is called Roll Call. And it's the solo that I was talking about where he basically just plays time and just a few little figures and just creates beautiful, really dramatic phrases. He uses his press roll. Uh, I guess it, he's, his is more like a crush roll than a press roll. It's unreal. Um, yeah. it's, it's its own technique, and I really – I don't even know – honestly, at the, at the volume that he's at and the intensity that he's at when that solo starts – a press roll or a buzz roll would be the last thing on my mind because yeah. it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to cut through with that because, I mean, even the chick in his left foot is, like, louder than the entire band. Yeah, you know? he's chomping, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. And then what I really love about it is it definitely has a theme for sure, you know, but it, that theme is going over the bar line sometimes. Like, it's, it's not as simple as a two-bar phrase. Yeah, uh, it's no. it's pretty cool. It's just like this loping theme that it's like, okay, he's got something in his mind, but he's not making it that easy for me to understand where is the press roll going to start and where is it going to end. Yeah, yeah. So this is one that I um, I spent a lot of time transcribing because it's so beautifully orchestrated and simple. So it kind of you know it it, it gets rid of the overwhelm of trying to learn jazz vocabulary because it could be so dense at times. And this is him just just saying, all right, I'm going to use one eighth note figure on the snare drum that's going to be my theme the other theme is going to be hitting the bass drum and the ride cymbal in unison and the other theme is a is a crush roll that's it he's got three items and and he makes like a i think it's a 16 it might be a 24 bar phrase out of that before he goes into the full-fledged drum solo so i studied this track since i was uh, 18 that's what i wanted to know is when was this on your radar and then when did you instead of just listening to it when did you dig in and go i actually want to know that or i want to understand that more it was he was an early influence just because of his um his vocabulary being a little bit more r&b kind of like soul oriented so i just related it so he was in my teacher in high school was always giving me art blakey records to check (laughs) out so he's He's top five all time for me. So it was awesome. when I was I was a senior in high school when I really started transcribing them. This particular track was like uh, grad school. It was 
like every day I was trying to trying to figure it out. Nice. I went to a maybe yeah, I was probably 24 years old when when it was like Art Blakey is now my guy for real. Like I was wow. really transcribed notebooks of transcriptions and, and so he was the guy. And it's a great one. I think it's a it's a great track to learn. You don't need to have a lot of words to to say something really powerful. Absolutely. And then, you know, We'll say then later in the, in the solo, you can hear him do all of his bombast, you know, around the kid right. triplets and stuff. Yeah, I think he might drop a beat or two, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't. He doesn't <laughs> care. He's got stuff to do later today. Well, let's give it a listen. Awesome. Well, my pick this time is from an artist by the name of Harry Connick Jr. And I was a huge Harry Connick fan when I was younger because I was playing in big band a lot and his stuff had lyrics. And I think as a fan of pop music, I was able to relate to the big band music that had a singer in it because of the lyrics and because it was just easier for me to follow, I think. So I was always a big Harry Connick fan. Uh, Blue Light, Red Light is still one of my favorite albums of all time with Shannon Powell on drums. There's a song on there called Just Kiss Me that's about 390 BPM. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> it's, it's Cherokee on steroids. And, uh, but I, I've always been a huge Harry fan. And then he came out with an album in 1996 called Star Turtle. So this album was just him kind of going back to his New Orleans roots and playing with a lot of New Orleans musicians and getting that real kind of dirty New Orleans sound. And so Star Turtle is the album. The song is called How Do Y'all Know? And the drummer on it is Raymond Weber. And that's what Mike and I were doing. We were actually researching Raymond Weber and finding out, wow, this guy is one of the cats from there. He's one of the um, top guys in the New Orleans scene and has played with, with everybody around there. So what I really like about this is I was very hip to the meters uh, when I was younger. This came out in 96. So I was 19, almost 20 years old at this time. Just graduated high school, was out on the road with my band. And uh, I, I remember thinking... This is a groove that could be in a new metal song if it didn't swing. It was uh. very linear, very syncopated. And one thing that I really loved about it was that even though I was very into the meters, some of those recordings are pretty old. It's hard to hear what Ziggy was doing. And this was so crystal clear. The drums were so present in the mix that I could hear every single note so I could transcribe it very easily. Now I couldn't play it easily. And the one thing that I found out, and you guys will find out too if you try to play this, the notes in succession are not that difficult. It's got some linear stuff. It's got an open hi-hat. It's got a big fat flam at the end. The feel is really hard to capture, which is the same with when you play Sissy Strut, right? Yeah, I mean, it's similar like, to that, right? It's a similar yeah. groove. It, very similar, yeah. And when you and when you hear Sissy Strut, you're like, "This is why do people make such a big deal of this?" And then you go play it on the gig, and you're like, "I just want to go home. This is <laughs> this is not an easy feel to cop." So this is right in between that greasy area between swing and straight, and it's just a really cool syncopated groove. And so you hadn't heard this until we listened to it, right? I don't think so. I don't think I've heard anything on this record, but it's yeah. it's definitely recorded really well. I actually prefer the gritty, dirty meters sound, sure, but for course. learning the drum part, this is super clear. Yeah, and I just I think I like that it was. It seemed like when I would listen to the meters and all that kind of stuff that I was listening to a time long ago, and it was almost like, yeah. well, how come the world gave up on this? Why don't we record it anymore? Right. And so getting to hear like, oh, somebody recorded it now. <laughs> With close mics, like this is cool. So I think that I was really excited about it, and it's it's just a it's a fun New Orleans swing tune. So let's check it out. Standing on top of my 
All right, so hopefully you guys will check out that stuff real quick. Once again, who is the art? It's not an Art Blakey album, right? It's Hank Mobley. Hank Mobley, the tenor saxophonist. It's a Blue Note album. The entire album is incredible, but it's the opening cut and also the very first drum solo that he plays, which is is it's on the track roll call. It's like a roll call. It's like a military like call to arms it is powerful so you could transcribe that entire record and and it will not harm you in the least (laughs) it will not (laughs) harm you so check out that and also check out star turtle by harry connick jr that the name of that song once again was how do y'all know all right so i wanted to talk a little bit about developing your bass drum technique and i think you got a chance to see it yesterday but on the mike's lessons family facebook page which is our private page for our family there was a guy there, and he was working really hard on his bass drum technique. And you could see from the videos, he put in the time on heel-toe and what he was calling the slide technique, and he was very frustrated. I mean, like, if you read that post, he seemed, like, quite pissed like, yeah. at himself, yeah. right? Yeah. And I felt horrible, and I, I, I immediately jumped in. I'm like, it's time for an intervention. Slow yeah. down. It's okay. And then I looked at those videos, and both of those techniques, in my opinion, and I was really excited to – see what you have to think because you might really not agree with me at all but i think that both of those techniques the way he was playing them were very extreme i've never played the bass drum pedal that way in my life i've definitely seen jojo mayer do the heel toe thing i've seen even my own foot do what i could assume people would call a slide but it's definitely not a slide i'm skipping i'm hitting it once and then i'm moving forward on the pedal and hitting it again but he was doing it in very extreme ways and I think if you start with technique and you predetermine this is the technique I'm going to do, sometimes it can be a little harmful because maybe that technique was developed by that other person because of their physiology. Uh, So I've just always thought in my head of trying to teach Shaquille O'Neal drums, I can't teach him with my techniques. He's got a size 24 foot. So his body's going to have to figure it out. We still have to get the same result, but his body's going to have to figure it out. So what do you think about those two techniques and developing your bass drum technique? I think this is the – this indicates to me – it's the perfect example of too much information. Yes. As soon as you give something a name and then you're trying to, like, unlock it – because the slide technique your foot's going to do once your ear hears the rhythms and then you just start trying to play the rhythms. There's there's really no other way to play doubles on a pedal without your foot skipping or sliding or doing something right. like that. Sure. But the moment you try to force your muscles to do that, I think it's you're destined to failure. It's similar to, you know, as soon as someone called it the molar technique, right. all of a sudden people were, like, trying to, like, like – crack the code of the molar technique when really the molar technique just means just let your arm do what the hell it wants to do naturally get out yeah. of the way and it's the same well, thing with bass drum technique also then you're factually incorrect in the molar technique because it's like well that's not it and it's like well what the hell does it matter doesn't yeah. the result isn't that all that matters is the result i mean we just talked about art blakey for god's sakes like <laughs> yeah. i was telling you before we started recording the podcast like i don't know how that man can play a press role he has like the weirdest technique ever, but it's like, didn't we just hear the most beautiful, powerful press roll ever? So yeah. Yeah, how exactly. am I going to dog out his technique? Yeah, you can't study the Art Blakey crush roll. I mean, <laughs> if you did, you would. Uh, you just have to hear it and try to get that sound. And I think right. if you hear, I think this is this is a risk of, of drummers who just, who don't have a musical application for stuff. To right. be leery of, like, do you need those techniques? Like, are you right. really playing music that demands it? Because probably not, because you probably would already be playing at a level that would be able to execute that technique to a point where you're not like, this is so far and what am I doing wrong? Um, Absolutely. So I don't, I don't like teaching techniques and breaking never, them apart like that. No. It, 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 I understand that that's a way to market kind of educational materials and stuff, but I don't like the open closed hand technique thing for me. It. I have no use for it. It's too no, quiet totally. and it's too uncontrolled for me. Yeah. So I'm not even going to, I don't play samba. I don't play music where I need to play 16th notes with one hand. I don't play death metal. So I'm not going to practice the open closed technique. And yeah. it's just like the heel toe bass drum technique. I don't play 16th notes in a row. And for me, that's not powerful enough. I would just use a double right. pedal if I needed right. to do that. Well, and not to mention if you were in a metal band, you wouldn't have to practice the open-close technique with your hand because as you can't keep up with your band and you're forcing yourself to figure it out, your body figures it out. Yeah. I mean, that's where all these techniques – you have to think like, okay, well, who who made up the heel-toe technique? 
whoever it was, it didn't exist until they made it up. So clearly they weren't following anybody's technique. Yeah. They just had to come up with something that made their foot be able to go with one foot. And all of a sudden they look down and go, oh, wow, that's how I'm doing it. I mean, that's for me. I mean, I've definitely been known throughout my career as having a fast single foot. And, you know, it's because. My parents couldn't afford a double pedal when I was a kid, so it's like, well, I'm not. I, I need to play Pantera. I, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Cowboys from Hell just came out. I got to do this. Um, so, but I've never worked on my bass drum technique at all. My technique that I give my students, and the only technique I teach, is called the desired result technique. Figure out the desired result, work your ass off, and when you get there, look down, and you'll find out what your foot does. Yeah. But. I never knew I skipped up the pedal until other people pointed it out to me. Yeah, like, hey, exactly. what's your foot doing down there? I was like, I don't know. I've you never even do looked it. down. Yeah, you, you just do it. Do it. Yeah. I mean, there's and been you, the one time I think that I've heard someone do something on the bass drum. Like, wow, what the hell are they doing? And then I investigated. Was Steve Gadd doing the heel toe on the uh, Buddy Rich Memorial concert okay. thing? He do, he just does like, but when he does it. It's a lope, and you can feel like an accent, unaccented kind of pattern. Right. So it has a musical application. He's just sure. not trying to cram out sixteenth notes and using this really strange technique. Right. He's trying to make it sound like a tap dancer, and he was right. a tap dancer. Oh, so really? Yes. Yeah, so that that's where he he just said, oh, "Let me try that tap dance technique on the bass drum," and there it is. And it wow, it gives you that sort of swinging, steady sixteenth note thing. But you couldn't do that with a rock band. And he doesn't crush the pedal. So I think if, as soon as you go into trying to be real physical with that stuff, I don't know that it works. It's a different no. It's a different genre. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. even when people say, like, oh, man, like, but JoJo Mayer does it. I'm like, I, I know. I've heard him do it. I've stood four feet away from him when he does it, and his bass drum is not hurting my ears at all. <laughs> it's very yeah. pleasant. It's a very light so technique. It's a light technique. The other thing, too, is the underestimation of the time that has to be put in to get this. I would say from – Right left kick kick at 40 BPM when I was younger to where I am now, right left kick kick for me is probably a, a 240 BPM as 16th notes around the kit, clean thing without a lot of effort. That was probably a three to four year process for me, working yeah. on it a little bit every day. Now it's not the only thing I worked on, but I did work on it every single day until I was so frustrated in that practice session that I couldn't do it anymore. And then I practiced learning songs or my hands or improvisation. But I worked on it every day. Same thing with a double stroke roll. A real yeah. legitimate non-baby bouncy pinky out double stroke roll was a two and a half to three year process for me. Yeah, day. and you can't you – can't, there's no shortcuts for that stuff. Nope. Which I think no. that's what sometimes these people – when you get a DVD that's like learn this technique, it, you think it's going to be a shortcut. But right. I, I feel like you should just start as slow as possible, just make it sound good. And as you increase the tempo, your body's going to have to – change Adjust. something yeah. or else you're yeah. just gonna you're just gonna fail you're not gonna be able to right. do it i right. i would rather focus on this is actually something i wanted to talk about is the sound that you're going for yes rather than the technique so do you want a punchy sound do you want an open sound and i i over the weekend i did two gigs where i was completely unamplified but they were they were moderately loud so I, I was like all right now I, I need to make this bass drum sound as big as possible so the whole night it was like don't bury the beater don't bury the beater and i was using a pretty open sounding drum so it was it was very apparent when i would bury the beater that i'd like lost kind of all the it. power yeah. yeah yeah so that was like all right i've got to i've got to hone in on that technique just to get the sound i'm not trying yeah. to hone in on technique just to have a technique to talk about right. yeah and the same thing with the snare drum i was really focusing on snapping the stick off the head to make it almost sound like it had its own reverb Mm, rather yeah, than yeah. you know crushing it because it was a lot of just big backbeats so it, it starts with a sound i think it should always start with a sound totally and you you just have to be open to you know sometimes people come and see me at, at camp or something that's really the only time or clinics where people are seeing me play up close and they go like hey you didn't you didn't bury the beater or you did bury the beater or you played that note with heel down i'm like you don't understand i don't have a technique like I have. I'm going for something, and whatever it takes to make that happen, that's what happens. Yeah. But I, I don't. I don't have rights and wrongs. You know. I mean, if I'm playing uh, like Art Blakey, I might actually flex my arms a little bit just to get a, stiffened up a little bit. I'm not yeah. trying to be slinky Bill Stewart. You know. Um, and so, whatever makes it happen is what makes it happen. So, to the student that was going through the woes, and to all of you guys out there that go through the woes of like, I'm not getting any faster. Definitely, it's just like diet fads. There is, there's no quick fix. 
Oh my goodness. Son of a do not disturb. I forgot to turn it on again. <laughs> Shut the front door. Um, Where were yeah, we? There's, <laughs> yeah, there's a, we'll just edit that out in the mix. <clears throat> we're going to sync that to the grid and uh, put a little Stephen Slate uh, samples over the top of you. Oh, um, man. But uh, yeah, there, there's no shortcuts. And you, you're gonna, you yeah. have to put in the work. And at some point, you, you have plateaus. And I remember my double strokes plateauing on uh, my hands at about 130 BPM. And they were there for like five months. And they'd fluctuate to 132 and back down to 128. And then, like you said, my body decided, hey, you know what? We have these little fast twitchy things called fingers. Let's get these guys involved. (laughs) But but no one told me, use your fingers. They just jumped in the mix. And all of a sudden, I went from 130 to 160 in like a week. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then I plateaued at 160. And then I pushed through again, and yeah. uh, you know, so it's it's just a long haul instrument. You got to stick with it. Try not to get too frustrated, guys. And, and the finger thing that was <clears throat> that might have been the trendy thing in the in the early nineties. I remember it was like, dude, you got to get yep. your finger technique together. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about, finger <laughs> technique? Right. What does that mean? So then, right. you know, everyone's trying to like do those the Buddy Rich thing. It's like. Just play naturally. Your fingers are going to have to be involved when you get to a certain tempo. Yep. So I'd never could. I even tried it for a couple months. Like let me let me try to do that one handed roll thing. I'm like that. It's, yeah. It doesn't have any application for me. That's I'm not the, playing that, like ten minute drum point? solos. It, like you have to have the application first to create the desire to practice something. And I see that even with the tone of your drum kit and the sounds that are on your drum kit. People always ask. Why don't you play a splash? Why don't you play a china? Because I don't hear one. When I do, yeah. I'll put one on my kit. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and the, the push-pull thing, as soon as I hear in my head with one hand, I'll work on it. But I don't hear that. The, the yeah. longest I hear is da-da-ding. I have enough technique to pull off da-da-ding, <laughs> right. da-da-ding. So, <clears throat> all right, guys. Well, let's move into our featured artist. This is somebody that got a short little... Uh, I don't even know if we call it a feature or a mention in the current issue of Modern Drummer. That's the one with the great Will uh, Will Calhoun on the cover. And this is Mr. Brad Wilk. Uh, You guys, if you don't know the name, you definitely know Brad. No one in the world doesn't know Brad Wilk. He is the drummer for Rage Against the Machine and an absolute influence to all rock drummers everywhere, whether they know it or not. So I actually specifically didn't research Brad for this because – I wanted to learn something about him. I don't know what he's up to, but I've always wanted to ask somebody either at Modern Drummer or in the know. Obviously, I was a huge fan of Rage Against the Machine when I was younger, and I think that his grooves, if you get rid of the music, I I think his grooves are quite incredible for that genre. Because when you think like, oh, well, it's a a rap, hip-hop, rock group, he's definitely going to have these hip – it's going to be Questlove on on drums. And it was the opposite. It was Dave Grohl playing in The Roots. And I just thought it was amazing. But the one thing I've always wanted to ask is, did he just not have any endorsements? Did he hate all – like the corporate world because it seemed like he just had the most random drums. There were never logos anywhere. I could never figure out what kit he played. Do you I, don't even know know? He, I don't know what he played early on. I know he, at one point, was a premier artist. I think he might have been a DW artist at one point. I don't recall. But <laughs> putting early tape on, over their he, was playing, he was playing like a, a three-piece kit anyway. It was just a bass drum, floor tom, right. snare drum. And snare, he set yeah. his kit up backwards. So I think a lot of it was like... I don't want to show you, you know, it, it was a, it was a stance against, okay. against all systems and all, you know, all whatever entities. Yeah. The first time I saw him was Lollapalooza and I thought for sure they were going to turn his drum riser around, but no, he faced away from the audience and he had a huge mirror in front of him and it was, it was the best show I've ever seen. I mean, they, they crushed and I'd I saw, saw them on Lollapalooza too. And I'd never heard him before that. It was no. like a complete, like, who the hell is this band? I've never seen a mosh pit go that nuts for a band before. And I was really into Tool, because that was the same time that Tool's second, like, the first full-length album came out, Undertow. So I was a huge Tool fan, so it was it was Rage and then Tool. Yep. And I got to say, uh, Tool had a hard time capturing the energy that Rage, you know, set fire to that stage. That's so funny. We must have been at the same tour. Uh, it was probably 94, 95. I don't remember when it was. Three or four, yeah. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I was still in high school, so it would have been 93 or 94. And I remember not going. I mean, I didn't know who Rage Against the Machine was. I was just like, that's a long name. They'll never make it. <laughs> 
because Tool is the is, yeah. you know I'm going to go see Tool. I, I can't remember if Jane's was on that as well, but uh, but yeah, I remember when I left, I was like, I just saw the greatest band of all time. Yeah. I mean, I, I just had never seen energy like that. But I always wondered about Brad. You know, was he part of everything that Zach and uh, uh, God, who's the guitar player, Tom Morello? Um, Tom Morello. It, was yeah. he part of all that, or was he just kind of like I'm the drummer in your band, but keep me out of this? But then, but then I was thinking, like, man, I don't remember even seeing logos on his symbols. Like, I felt like he just took you know pledge and got rid of the logos even. <laughs> yeah so yeah I mean, uh, they were, that was their whole thing and i think the original it might have been one of his cover stories he he talked about how the band formed he just put up a one ad like looking for someone to play like led zeppelin and that's how really? he met tom morello wow so if you really listen to rage riffs they're basically led zeppelin riffs with more distortion and a heavier totally. groove if that can be possible heavier guitar yeah. groove yeah yeah no that's and that's what i mean is i was so i mean obviously at the same time and I know people maybe snicker at it, but they, you have to go back in time to remember that at one point it was cool. But I remember thinking John Otto from Limp Biscuit, that's the drummer I would think would be in Rage. But Brad yeah. was, you know, just shirtless, long hair, hitting like Bonham. Yeah. You know, ghost notes are for kids. I don't have time for them. <laughs> and I was just like, dang, this is going on while this guy's. Like seriously, rapping. Uh, yeah. It was it was incredible. So now, what's he up to now? The most recent thing. Well, you know he's on the last Black Sabbath album. Did I did that? not know that. Yeah, no. he's he's playing drums on that record. But the thing that's happening right now, he's touring with. Um, it's the rhythm section from Rage. So it's Tom Morello, him, and uh, what's his name, Timmy C. The guy with the. The like when, when, when we say a sleeve tattoo, that dude actually tattooed his entire arm black. Yeah, black yeah. tattoos all over. <laughs> yeah, so Timmy C, Tom Morello, and Brad are the rhythm section, and the MCs are Chuck D from Public Enemy and uh, Be Real from Cypress Hill. And what's it called? What's the group called? It's called Prophets of Rage. Okay. And they are touring, I think largely they formed this band as a political protest uh, group. So they're giving away part of their proceeds to local homeless uh, charities in each town they play in. Wow. And then they're, you know, they're basically using this as a, a mechanism to kind of stir up some energy around the, the upcoming election. That's cool. That's really cool. And uh, do you know, are they doing Rage songs or are they doing their own original stuff? Or are they doing Cypress Hill and... I would assume they're doing stuff. everything. I haven't, okay. I haven't seen any footage, but I would hmm. assume they're doing... I can't imagine they wrote all new material. Right, sure. Which but would yeah. be kind of cool, but uh, I would imagine if they want to draw crowds, they're going to have to play some of the hits. Yeah. I mean, Chuck D and Be Real, that's interesting. Yeah, and I wonder, though, if, I mean, to hear them sing Rage songs, you know, like, yeah. Bulls on Parade. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Is that Chuck D singing Bulls on Parade? Yeah, actually, uh, I do want to look it up now because I have no idea what they're doing. They might be just freestyling. Who knows? That's so cool. Well, um, <laughs> Well, and I'm wondering, does Brad have endorsements now, or is he still like, look, I've got a kick, a snare, and a floor tom. We don't need to talk about it. He um, at least has a four-piece kit now in the photo that we have, but... Uh, you still can't tell what it is, right? You still can't tell what it is. <laughs> so I remember always thinking, like, well, with those lugs, it's either a Pearl or or a Gretsch, but I'm like, there's no badges, and like there was gaff tape. I think even when at when I saw them at uh, Lollapalooza, I I can't remember, but that might have been the first band I'd ever seen that put gaff tape over their Marshall amps and their Marshall logos. Yeah, and it exactly. was just like there was gaff tape everywhere. And I was like, no wow, logos. Yep. you guys don't care. Um, <laughs> and uh, then we learned the political side of them as well. So, well, everybody, go back and listen to some Rage and listen to Brad's grooves and just appreciate how influential he was for that genre because he's an absolutely incredible drummer if you get a chance to see him again i think you'd be really blown away by the power that the drum set can bring because he's not going to be your instagram guy dropping 30 second note grooves with a bunch of diddles and licks he just yeah he any any i mean when i saw him in the 90s and then we played with them at the last woodstock that burnt down um i was actually on that show and we uh, we had just finished playing. There was obviously multiple stages. We went over to go see Rage, and you know the entire. It seemed like the earth was shaking as they were playing. The the crowd was so into it. But he doesn't rush. He doesn't drag. He just plays his parts. 
And yeah. it's, it's pretty incredible. So, all righty, guys. Well, it is time for a little bit of candy. It is time for gear review. And I'm so excited for this one. <laughs> this appeal, the watch, the new watch collector in me is, Ooh, this is, yeah. this is the stuff. Okay. So Van Cleef snare drums, VK snares. I've seen them twice now. I saw them at the London drum show, talked to the owner, hung out with him for a while and was blown away by the craftsmanship. Then I got to see him again at NAMM. And once again, just like, wow, man, you are an absolute metal artist, an yep. absolute metal artist. And like I said, the the part of me that's into watch collecting, there's a uh, copper Latisse piccolo snare that's a 13 by 3 copper shell, and he's got all these cutouts in it because he's cutting the metal, and it's got single-flanged hoops, and... Dude, it's selling. It's all sold out, but it was selling for 499 euros. So that's probably about what 750 US. Yeah, that's surprisingly cheap. Yeah, it's surprisingly cheap. And I was like, oh my gosh, I would actually call him and, and I, I might actually have him make me one of these. But the only thing holding me off is the fact that I've only heard them at the London Drum Show and at NAM. I've actually never heard these drums. So. Uh-huh. And they and I and I I no disrespect whatsoever, but the few times I've heard them, even at NAM and London Drum Show, they were not overly tuned. They were you know not muffled at all. So it was just kind of like, I don't know. It sounds like a drum. Yeah. It looks gorgeous, and I was blown away by the throw off. The fact yeah. that your throw off has a I'll let you, in it. Yeah. Yes, that is so cool. That's the coolest thing ever because I'm such a nerd for that stuff. So what was uh, first of all, which two snare drums did you have to review? Okay, this review, um, he sent actually three of them that were at the NAMM show, but I just chose two of them because they were just a perfect uh, yin and yang kind of pairing. Okay. One is all titanium, and when I say all titanium, I mean everything is made from titanium except for the drum heads and the wires. So even the tension rods? Tension rods, lugs, hoops, shell, throw off. So it weighed almost nothing. But it's, it's big though, right? Yeah, I mean it's a six and a half by fourteen. Okay, with their their straight hoops, um, you know. It, so it's I can't. I, I should have weighed the actual measurements, but it was it was light. It was very light. And in the opposite side of it, they sent a cast B twenty bronze snare that Ooh. the hoops and the shell are all made of heavy bronze. That sucker was like backbreakingly <laughs> heavy, <laughs> probably like twenty pounds when it was in the box. So pretty crazy. So they were just two extreme, uh, you know, options. And for for people who just like slick, sleek designs, it's kind of hard to beat it. Uh, he, every detail. He's he's from Sheffield, England, which I, after doing some research, I found out that that's where they invented uh, stainless steel. Oh, really? So originally stainless steel was all coming from Sheffield. So he's got a connection with that. He uses a la- laser uh, cutting machine to do the the, the custom vents so there's a lot of signature drums for people you can get your own signature yeah i mean i saw the i saw the thomas lang one um and i'm going through their um their news section and now i I remember we did review some of their stuff on this podcast when uh, barry kirsch was on uh the drummer from shinedown you had reviewed uh, a six by 14 titanium uh, stainless steel and an aluminum and then uh, as I scroll down more, I see that I'm on the cover of Rhythm Magazine. And apparently in that one, they <laughs> reviewed an aluminum snare. So I, I did make it into their drum, into their site. I wouldn't mind that 3x14 snare if you're listening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they both just had a – they both sound great. I mean it's kind of hard to really say one does one thing better than the other. The cast bronze is, is more of your bell brass, like shotgun kind of a tone. Okay. The titanium has got a, you know a little bit more of you know the the subtlety and the versatility, but they're both very versatile. There's nothing. So in general, since we don't have a lot of companies, well, first of all, let me ask you this: uh, I don't want to get too far off of VK drums, but are there a lot of companies that you know of that make titanium snare drums? No, maybe three. I mean, Danette has definitely made it the most you know the most notoriety. These guys and um, uh, Black Swamp maybe is using okay. titanium. The other thing I've noticed, too, on their site is that uh, they actually have in the past made some wood drums. It's not all metal. I'm looking at um, uh, a maple. I'm looking at a American red oak, 14 by 7. 
so he's definitely done, and and they're gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. But obviously, they're his main thing is the the metal stuff, which, like I said, the artistry, guys. Just before you hear these drums, just go to vkdrums.com. You'll you'll really be blown away. This guy is, like I said, this guy's a true artist, and I've met him twice and spent some serious time with him because I was so enthralled with his drums. He's one of the nicest guys ever. So, um, so real quick before we get to the sound. What where do you think titanium fits in in the world of metal drums? Titanium is to my ears it is like between aluminum and steel. Okay. So it's it's pretty dry but it, it it's not um it doesn't have a whole lot of it's it doesn't have all the high end bite that a steel drum might have. Okay. It has a little bit drier, a little bit darker sound, uh surprisingly warm. I, I would say it's a surprisingly warm sound for a metal drum. Nice. I've played titanium kits, and, and they have some of the biggest, fattest sounds I've ever heard. I don't know what, what it is about it, but it sounds well, nice. let's uh, give them a listen. Do you know which order we're going to hear these in? Yeah, the titanium first and the bronze second. And uh, as a warning, these are incredibly expensive drums because these are these – are, <laughs> these are like they're des- these that are high designed. You know, I mean, he had to make the tension rods each tension rod. So the the all titanium is like a fifteen hundred dollar drum, and the the cast bronze is a whopping twenty five hundred dollars. <clears throat> like I said, the dude is an artist, and <laughs> and I mean, I will say this: it's very rare that something in the drum world costs that much because they were bored and they just marked it up. There's usually a reason for those kind of expenses, so it's yeah. the work that goes into it. And this is, and I'm assuming this is probably very Donette style, where it's just a dude. It's not some huge factory making yeah, these. Yeah, pretty much. So, and and we've I've talked about it before, but these any, any drum that's made of cast bronze is not cheap to even make because they got to melt down essentially symbol alloy and and put it into a mold. So that's you know the reason the bell brass is so expensive because it it costs them almost that much just to make it. Gotcha. Well, let's give him a listen. to some listener questions here uh the first one comes from paul he wants to know what has been your i want to know what has been your best gig you've ever played and also what was your worst Mm. why don't you go buddy i can't define best or worst i mean it the most fun gig i've ever had uh i can't i can't answer it can you answer it right (laughs) off the bat uh Man, it, it depends. I mean, gig wise, I'm thinking back to like um, probably like my very first arena show with like as an opening band. But yeah. just to just, I don't even think the gig was the best. I think sound check was the best. If you've ever sound checked a bass drum in an arena, it's pretty neat <laughs> because when they kick on, like there's no PA. They have towers of speakers strung up you know hundreds of speakers and subwoofers and so when you sound kit or sound check a bass room in that that's you know we had an australian sound guy and he's like john o kick and i was like <laughs> did it did it and then it goes doom doom i'm like oh my god john o snare tom tom <laughs> um it was just like uh, that 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 to me was a way cooler experience than the gig the gig you're so overloaded with your senses i would say um in my modern career, still PASIC uh, was mm, – right. that was like the coming of age 45 minutes of my life, right? It, mm-hmm. it all led up to one moment and 
Um, I learned a lot. It didn't, you know, there's a million things I would correct if I could, but the vibe in the room that day just meant the world to me. So, and, and then, I mean, you and I got a lot, like I got off the stage and you were, you know, within a week, you were like, do you want to be on the cover of Modern Drummer? Right. What? (laughs) It worked? The practice paid off? All right. Um, So, so yeah, so I I would say that, but, and then worst, no, I, I don't think there's, I don't even know how to quantify that. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I'm, I just have to cop out and say that no gig I've ever played has been as as good as I hoped it would be, and no gig has been as bad as I might have thought it was. Yeah, I would so. say that the bad is always on me and my under-preparation. The, the bad ones have been the ones that I thought I could just coast through. You know, like, yeah, um, like, yeah I'll just get up there and be able to play the blues. I'll cover for you. And then it's like, uh, maybe I should have listened to the blues on the drive here. I don't even know what the <laughs> hell the blues are. You know, it's like, well, that's... That was a train wreck, and it was so it was all under preparation. That's it, and and so the and the gig had come off fine, but it's like I hated myself for it. So I would yeah. say that's about as bad as it gets. All right, next question comes from this is uh, Dominic. So he wants our opinion on drum shields. Uh, do they have any perks for using them? Uh, we haven't talked about them before. You wow. know, we've used them. Um, he doesn't prefer to use them. He prefers to focus on controlling his own dynamics rather than using a shield. Mm. Um, he's basically he's a, he's a church drummer. It sounds like he's convinced that the youth group band here at church. He's convinced the youth group band at his church to not use it. Okay, but he still has to play behind one on the main services. <laughs> um, I Is there think- anything better than when they put a drum shield in front of your V drum kit? <laughs> <laughs> I've seriously Dude, I, seen that. <laughs> I just heard a story uh, just the other day. The the folks from Sensory Percussion that they developed this new software and trigger system that okay. I'll be reviewing later. They were telling me that a drummer got fired from a, a major tour because he, he, he the singers might he the singer whispers into the microphone and his snare drum was too loud. No matter wow. what, it was being it was picking up into the vocal mic, so they fired him. <laughs> Wow. And then the next guy, they ended up having to. They brought in this company to try out their trigger system, and it worked. So, <laughs> the point in telling that story is, I think sometimes jump shields are necessary if you have a lot of microphones for vocalists on stage. Because exactly, it doesn't matter how quiet you play, no. you're going to be too loud for those mics. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's the thing is, um, you just have to. You know, do your job, uh, but yeah, it's not that that shield isn't to protect the audience from your bombastic drumming. That shield is to block the bleed of your drums into everything else that needs to be turned up. Um, so you know, they could not mic you at all, and and you could play quiet. But if you're in the direction of the choir, uh, you know, the choir could be anywhere on the stage, and all of a sudden you're bleeding into their mics, and they can't get the drums low enough without turning down the choir mics, but the choir is more important than you in this situation, yeah. so they have to turn up those mics. So it's a microphone thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been to certain certain towns. I can't remember where I was, but the, the city itself had an ordinance, so they had to put the drummer in like a plexiglass booth. Yep. Yeah, I've seen – I mean, that's actually really common. Who who does that? Uh, it's not – I think it may be in New Orleans. No, 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 but I mean I was going to ask not in a church, but it's somebody we know does – Carter doesn't do that, does he? He's oh, yeah the, yeah, the Lion King is in a booth. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, yeah so he's got his own drum room, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so that, that stuff's common, you know. I mean, as soon as they tint the plexiglass, then it's a little bit of an insult, and they just don't <laughs> want to see you. But as long as it's clear, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. All yeah. right, next. Next is from Charles. He is so says, hey, guys, I've been a pretty active drummer, and I play about six gigs a month, and I've never had a need to read drum charts. I can read pretty much any rock groove um, if he's given time to break it down, but his recent goal is to get a cruise ship gig, which will require Mm. strong sight reading skills. So to be prepared, he's been downloading a bunch of songs, but he doesn't feel like he's making enough progress, um, especially with jazz charts, which require more improvisation. So do we have any books, DVDs, or other suggestions? Uh, my suggestion immediately would not be a book or a DVD, which there are some great ones that maybe you can mention to uh, Steve Houghton has a few. My suggestion would be join your local junior college jazz band. Yeah. If you can, for six months, one semester, put yourself in that world, th- there's nothing that's going to prepare you quite like that. Um, I trust you to be diligent with your practice. And like I said, Steve Houghton has some great books on that stuff. But... But sometimes you actually just have to read charts. 
because uh, you don't even know if you're right or wrong until the director just snaps his head at you like you're the biggest moron on earth <laughs> and you just go like uh second ending and he goes yes second ending child and you're like oh my goodness this is important um <laughs> So, but I, I would also assume that cruise ship gigs—they're a little different than they were back in the day. I mean, I, I would assume you have to read, but couldn't you? It's mostly pop tunes now, right? Or I think is it just all a different? Pen? Yeah, it depends okay. on what band you're doing. You probably have to read a book to at least to start, right? Which is probably not much rehearsal time. I have not done any of that work, but I, I would assume they probably just hand you the book and it's like just be ready on day one and and right. you know if you can read it cool there is a book that i think is really great for uh breaking down the whole process of interpreting drum charts and it is called big ben drumming at first sight by steve okay. fiddick oh yeah yeah. it comes with a lot of play along tracks so you can hear how and it's real play along tracks it's not synthesizers and stuff he actually did a session with a full big band Oh, and they, so do, cool. they demonstrate most of these, how to set up figures, how to interpret rhythms on the chart, you know, all the appropriate fills and styles and what, what you know, the types of indications you might see on a chart, like how, how repeats are often written, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. So that book is, is one of the best I've seen. That's through Alfred Music. It came out in 2011. What's the Big, name of it again? Big Band Drumming at First Sight by Steve Fiddick. Nice. Check that out, Charles. All right. And join your local jazz band if you can. It'll really help. Dive in. Um, uh, I love that you're like proofreading them while <laughs> podcast listeners are driving their car. Like, take your time, Mike. I'm in traffic. It's no big deal. This <laughs> will all be edited out. <laughs> no, it won't. Because I always ask you to cut out the beginning weight when I make an ass out of myself, and you always keep it in. <laughs> hey, we need to pick a word of the week for our giveaway. What's it going to be? Van Cleef. Van Cleef. That's technically yes. two words. That's okay. <laughs> okay, edit that out. It's a name. Right. Cleef. So those of you listening, if you want to be entered into a free subscription to Modern Drummer plus a Modern Drummer sick bag full of Mike's signature Vader sticks, you got to email mdinfo at moderndrummer.com, put in the subject podcast contest, and type in the word, which is, Mike, the word is? The name is Van Cleef. <laughs> so, and if, if you want to be a stud, go ahead and send it to Mike. This would make me really happy. Don't put a space. V-A-N-K-L-E-E-F, one word, Van Cleef. <laughs> yeah, so email the word Van Cleef to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We will choose one winner randomly out of those of you who email us next week. All right, you go. so I had another question here. Okay. Okay, so this comes from Kyle. I just heard in an interview with Aaron Sterling that he says he does not listen much to what the bass player is doing, uh, but he often needs the vocals when he's doing a session. He mm. plays more off of the vocal as far as where his fills go and all that. So what do we think about that? Um, for him, he usually plays more off the guitar and vocals. Hmm. I think that's a great question. I think there's many different angles we could go. I will start by saying... You should always follow the vocal because that's the lead instrument. I think that that takes yeah. priority over everything. And a lot of times, I, I would think in Aaron's case, this is similar. The bass is usually the last thing to get tracked. Like the final bass part is usually the last thing to get tracked. Right. So you, you really can't go off of that. It'll be some sort of a guide bass drum, a bass part. But the vocal is key. So especially with drum fills because you can... You can annihilate the vocalist. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> like, with your fills, be like, sorry, sorry, honey, I'm following the bass player. <laughs> and he, <laughs> so, he took a little break, and I'm going to rip. And I also uh, think, I mean, at least in my experience, if I have a good connection with the bass player, we don't have to listen to each other, because it just locks. There yeah. might be certain things where we might have to adjust a pattern, like maybe he's playing a four-bar part, and I'm playing a two-bar part, but once we figure that out... It it should be on automatic. That's what makes a rhythm section great. I think it should be yeah. you know, should be so locked in that now you can listen to other stuff, not it listen depends. to yourself. It depends too on on what you're listening to the bass player for. Some people are listening to the bass player specifically for their bass drum and to create a bass drum part around that. And then there's times uh, I was listening with Ash and Mark Bingo in our uh, camp in Ireland. We we're listening to a modest is it modest Yahoo? Yeah. Uh, album where the the bass player was I mean it was like the 
antithesis of the whole Philly style, like we're not playing in time together. If you would have listened to the bass player, the whole song would have fallen apart. And Mark actually had to fill in for this gig live and do this gig. And it was one of those things where it was like, no matter what, do not follow the bass. <laughs> he will lead you astray. Uh, so, so it really just depends on what you're listening to them. And then I have some uh, Mike Stern stuff that I listen to that's kind of all over the place, really fusion-y. And the bass is the only thing that I can steal the time from. Actually, a good example of that is just listen to Cuban music. Drum yeah. set players have a really hard time finding the one in traditional Cuban music. But if you listen to the bass, it's like, okay, just pull down all the faders on everything that you're hearing and just listen to that bass player. And that's where I'm getting my time from. Um, or even Brazilian music, too. So, uh, so, so yeah, it just depends on what you're listening to them for. But I think in Aaron's case, we're, we're talking about pop. He's not playing fusion. Yeah. And so his entire job is predicated on supporting the singer-songwriter. Yeah. So yeah, I think and it the makes bass a ton part, of sense. I mean, and it, and he kind of is referencing drum fills and variations. So you're not you're yeah. not going to play off the bass for your fills. You're going to no. find holes in the vocal phrasing to do whatever you need to do, or not do anything. A or lot to of stay out of their way. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple singers that I play with that I guess they're just frustrated drummers because at the end of every four bars, their their vocal line goes straight through where you would play a sol- uh, play a, a drum fill. <laughs> so you right. have to I have to just be like I you know I have to pick a. You know, my drum fill might be a floor tom note on the end of four yes. because the vocal line goes all the way to the end of four. You can't cover if that I, up. Yeah, if I played something else, it would just obliterate that. And usually that's the most important line because it's the end of a phrase. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, it's. I think I think listening to the vocal is always priority number one. Nice. All right. So uh, so next week we'll bring back some audio questions. We have a couple audio questions. and We do, Obviously, yeah. more paper questions to get to, so keep sending those in mdinfo at moderndrummer.com you can do a double whammy you can send us a question uh, and then two seconds later send us a little Van Cleef and Van Cleef. Uh, everything will be <laughs> win yourself a subscription and a stick bag and some sticks and some sticks 12 pairs to be exact that's a brick for all you kids that want the cool lingo a brick of sticks <laughs> alright it is time for pick of the week uh, and I'd like to use this time instead of giving you a pick to review the uh, the braggy since I figured the braggy ah, in ears yeah. that I, I purchased from last time since i can't review them in our gear review section because it's like all right let's take a listen to my in-ears like we <laughs> yeah. can't so i just wanted to give you a heads up i've had them for a week now uh so let me give you some pros and cons pros they are amazing amazing earplugs as soon as i put them in i would say they're almost identical to having the foam earplugs like the 26 db reduction earplugs that you would get wow. from home depot so they're great earplugs. Uh, they do, if you swipe up on the left one, the, the outsides of these earbuds are fully touch sensitive. So there's no buttons anywhere. Um, so if you swipe up on the earpiece, it initiates what they call transparency mode. So it turns on a microphone inside them and they become uh, hearing aids. So you're able to hear everything around you while still listening to your music. So that would be important for me if I'm riding my bike home from work and i want to hear traffic around me i don't want to have earplugs in uh so i would say that that definitely needs some software updates and the great thing about these is they are getting better every month through software updates you don't have to get a new pair of them you just upload the uh the newest software update you cannot play drums with that transparency mode on it'll it just cracks you know it peaks Mm -hmm. the whole time so it's just really so you can hear yourself speak and you can hear those around you the um, another thing is they have a heart rate monitor in them, and it's very um, it's very good. As long as the earpieces are all the way in, you can use it. And it, it comes with an app for your phone, so you can see your heart rate, you can see your steps, you can see how many miles you've walked, all that stuff while you're wearing these things. Uh, the sound quality is fantastic. I love the low end. It's great. Um, they are – you can swim with them. They come with sleeves, so you can keep them mm-hmm. in your ears while you swim, so they're waterproof. Uh, and once again, these are called um, the Dash, and the company is called Braggy. So they make two different sets. They make a set of earphones, and they make a set of these, which are computers inside your ear. The four gig storage is pretty incredible. Um, so you don't have to have them hooked up to the Bluetooth. So you can put your podcast. You can drag any audio file into. When you plug them in to your computer, your computer reads them as a hard drive. Mm. So you have these folders called playlists, playlists one through ten, and you just drag your music or your podcast into those playlists and just by touching the side of your ear uh that's if you tap once it's play if you tap twice it um 
play and stop is tapping once tapping twice on your ear moves it to the next song and then tapping and holding it down will launch a siri in your ears and she'll say would you like to go to playlist one playlist two playlist three (laughs) and then you nod your head up and down and it goes to that one so they're pretty incredible uh what i've used them for the most so far is they are a an amazing Bluetooth metronome. I put my metronome on on my phone, uh. and I put these in, and I I love practicing with them. I have no wires, and I don't know. It's not a big deal. I mean, I've always practiced with in-ears or headphones, but there's this weird freedom of playing drum set without this cable attached to my freaking head. Mm-hmm. And so I've got it. I've got the metronome going, and... As I'm practicing, I just go, you know what? I'm going to get up and go grab a green tea, and I don't unplug anything. I don't do anything. Just, you know. And it's so it's pretty amazing. So the big con. There is a huge con, and I need to warn you of this before you buy these. The Bluetooth sucks. So if you are buying these to be Bluetooth headphones, don't. Buy Bluetooth earbuds or Bluetooth headphones. There's so much technology inside these that they don't have enough room to put an amazing Bluetooth system in them. It totally works. If you have your phone in your pocket, it's fine. But I mean, man, if it gets five to 10 feet away, it's going to, it drops notes of the metronome. It drops, oh, yeah. you know, so, and they tell you that right on the, on their website. Like if you want amazing Bluetooth connectivity, buy their headphones their headphone or i mean i think they're called the earphones but there's no computer in them all they are is bluetooth headphones and they're incredible and they're a hundred dollars these are three hundred dollars but the whole point of this is you don't have to use the bluetooth because they have their own storage in them so i would give them maybe eight out of ten stars uh the technology is incredible they're comfortable they're great earplugs and i am i'm obsessed with practicing them with them in so and what about uh they don't heat up or anything like that no no warmth whatsoever Oh, great. Uh, and I've used them for about an hour at a time. And each charge on them lasts two hours on the earbuds themselves. But the case that they come with, which no one else can see, but I can show it to you. Um, and you can see it on their site. It's just braggy.com. So the case they come with um, charges them five more times. When it's so, not even plugged in? So correct. It's like a, uh, so cool. it's its own battery source. Nice. And this is the interface, the USB interface to update the software and to drag and drop your music onto the earbuds. So, Quite interesting. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. So check it out, Braggy, and it's called The Dash, and those are the earbuds I'm using. All right, what's your pick of the week, bud? My pick of the week is I just saw, I think it was t- last night, um, good old Zach Danziger can't, can never sit still. He's got a new project called uh, Edit Bunker, and it is, it's him and bassist... Um, Oli, what's his last name? Owen, Owen Biddle. Okay. So it's Zach Danziger and Owen Biddle. Uh, they did a TED Talk maybe a couple years ago. Yep, they were I remember. They were talking about technology and music, and that turned into this full-fledged duo project. They're playing some festivals and stuff. So my pick of the week is to go to like their Facebook page and read the, f- the latest entry on that kind of gives you a glimpse of what they're doing and watch the video. So... If you just watch the video, it's pretty amazing. It's kind of confusing as to who's doing what. What they what they're doing is they took video clips of Edith from All in the Family and they are interacting with it live with their instruments. They're turning her voice into synths and you know, and controlling the chord sequence that overlays on her vocal. The bass, I mean, and, and if if the bass doesn't play, then you don't hear her at all. The drums are controlling how intense the synth layers are. So if you just watch the video, you think they, they pre-wrote this piece and they're just playing along to it. But when you read the description, you realize, holy crap, they're controlling every ounce of this live. This is This wow. is a performance with video, drums, and bass. And the drums are controlling most of the chordal movement. In, in the piece. So and what's it called again? Bunker the, Down? Edit Bunker. Edit Bunker. Yeah. So I'm sure what I just said confused the hell out of you. It, it confused the hell out of me, but you got to watch the video because it's I awesome. I think I kind of get it, though. So you're saying that it, if you didn't know what was going on, you would think it's just video being played or... or you, yeah, you would think they did like an Ableton Live session where they dropped this video in and messed with her vocal a bunch, and now they're just jamming over top of it. But in, in reality, they're the ones making it happen in the moment. It's just a, a clip of her video that then, as they play, it manipulates the audio in a way that makes it sound like music. So her vocal becomes like a, a synth. 
<laughs> and it's and it's the density of that synth. He, and the arpeggiation is controlled by Zach's drums, and when the when her vocal appears in the music is controlled by the bass. But they're also playing the, the hell out of their instruments. <laughs> Man, Zach, I, I really feel that Zach is one of those guys that won't be appreciated in his time, yeah. and thirty years later will realize his brilliance because his brilliance will become the norm we just yep. have we just need 30 years to catch up to his brain yeah i mean he's i see him a couple times a year and he's been telling me about this this stuff he's been exploring for several years and he literally could not find a technology that existed that could do what he wanted to do and that was oh. for me it was like holy crap like roland couldn't do it yamaha couldn't do it Aben, ableton couldn't really do it so he's just had to like deconstruct software and stuff to make his own his own system that's so awesome <laughs> yeah that so is so awesome edit bunker they see it maybe tomorrow they'll have another post when this goes live but it was posted on the sixth or the fifth uh, okay but you'll see it it's like their top top post awesome check it out awesome buddy we'll have a fantastic week you got gigs this weekend none none this weekend sweet thankfully i've got some i gotta get that dw kit reviewed <laughs> nice I've got uh this is my last uh, no more bingo. This is my last camp of the year starting on Saturday. So Oh yeah. Yeah, nice. I, or last camp of the summer. I do 10 per summer and so this is the last one and I'm going to make the most of it for sure. By the way, in the, we didn't even get a chance to talk about it, but in the last camp we had the developer of mikeslessons.com and uh, Brad Phillip and the developer of the Groove Scribe Lou Montuli. They were both campers in the camp. That's awesome. And, uh, it was pretty rad because I would say, all right, guys, well, if you want, you could just groove scribe this exercise while you practice. And then everyone would turn around and be like, hey, Lou, how do I? I really wish it could. Is there any way you could just, can we get a fader on the? And I was like, Lou, I'm so sorry, bro. <laughs> He's like, that's okay. It's what I'm here for. He's got Same have with a pen Brad. Name. Yeah, they would, they would ask things of Brad where I'm like, do you know how, how long that would take us to develop that? Like, hey, Brad, is there any way you could just get it to track like my heart rate when I'm practicing? It's like, oh, God. <laughs> It's a website. It's not going to change the world. All right, buddy. Well, have a great week, and I will see you guys soon. Everybody, if you can, give us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. That stuff helps other drummers find this podcast, which is extremely important. And remember, if you want to win some prizes, just send your email to uh, Modern Drummer. No, info at moderndrummer.com. No, MD info. MD info. <laughs> Son of a – that makes no sense. MD info at moderndrummer.com. I guess it makes sense. It's just long. <laughs> I just can't remember it. And the word of the week is Van Cleef, no spaces. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.